again. Yes, thank you. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles, if you have one, you can open up to First Samuel 16. And uh, if you don't have one and you want to follow along where we're going, I'll, I'll be on the same page as the, as the Bibles under the chairs, and that's page 238. Um, my Bible kind of tracks with those page number wise. Um, we've been going through a series, if you're new, called The Story of God. And what we've been seeing in this series is we've been trying to kind of follow the trail map marked out for us in Hebrews 11, where the author to Hebrews said that all of the Old Testament heroes in the past were living by faith in God. And if we're not careful, we might interpret that by kind of a modern American faith teaching, which is faith is a magic power, or faith is a special muscle, or, you know, all kinds of weird things you're taught today. But faith basically means dependence on God. Faith is all about the object of faith, right? The object is God, is Jesus, is him accomplishing great things for us because he's gracious, because he's powerful. And so when we talk about faith, we're, we're not really talking about us. We're talking about him and our trust in him. So that calls us to look back at the Old Testament characters as examples, but not examples that we should do everything the way they did. Because when you actually read your Old Testament, they did a lot of bad things, right? We're, we're to follow them in their example of faith. That they trusted in God, and we should trust God also. And God can do great things and surprising things through us and in us as we trust Him. And that's what we see in these characters. Today, we're looking at David in 1 Samuel 16. I'm fond of, of David because we share names, so that's cool. Um, his name actually means beloved. And what we see in the life of David is that we see that he's this character that kind of stands in for us for Jesus. We've already kind of seen that with a lot of the other Old Testament characters as well. Um, in Moses' life, you know, there's this prophet that's going to come that's going to be like Moses, we're, we're told, and that's Jesus. And this king that's supposed to come, this Messiah, this anointed chosen king, and that's ultimately Jesus, who's a descendant of King David. And so what we're going to do in the life of King David this morning is I'm going to try to summarize uh, two books of the Bible, right? All of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel. So what I really want to do is kind of uh, get you interested in reading it for yourself so that this week you go and read First and Second Samuel and try to pick up on some of these themes on your own. And so we're just going to pick up on some of the highlights. But as you read through it, what you'll see is that David is contrasted with Saul. And if any of you have read the Old Testament before, do you, do you remember why Saul was picked as king over Israel? Do you remember what stood out about Saul? He was tall. Saul was a giant. Saul was the giant of Israel. He was bigger than everybody, it says. Because he was like a head and shoulders taller than all the other men of Israel. So he was this big, like, warrior stud, right? So he just looked kingly. And that's not why David was picked to be king, okay? And so we have this contrast between uh, the true king that God chooses and the king that's kind of chosen from the fleshly standpoint, to, to use the terminology of the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, we're always encouraged not to depend strength, on our flesh right? depend on and our own strength, strength right? I shouldn't depend on how smart I am or how good looking I am, or that was a joke, or how talented I am, right, or how strong I am. You know, we're not supposed to depend on what we have, the money we have in the bank. We're supposed to depend on the spirit, okay? supposed to trust in the spirit of God. And that's kind of the contrast we see between Saul and David. We see this played out. We see Saul is Mr. Flesh. He's, he's big. He's all muscle. He looks kingly. And then David, who's the smaller, weaker one, who God has actually chosen, and right? And as it turns out, I just have to, you know, let you know. I mean, David turns out to be strong. It's not like God hates strong people. So, you know, for those of you that are buff, we're not against you, right? Okay, we're on your side. It's not that God hates strong people. It's just we have to entrust even our strengths to God, right? Because we all have some kind of gift. We all have some kind of strength. And we need to just not trust in that absolutely. We need to make sure that we're trusting in God with those gifts that he's given us. Okay, so let's look at 
Uh, 1 Samuel 16, um, we're going to read, starting in verse 1, I'm just going to read verse 1 and skip down to verse 6, and this is basically the the actual moment when God chooses David, okay? We get this highlight of of that he's the one God's chosen over Saul. Saul had disobeyed, and the kingdom was told, you know, it's going to be ripped away from your family, Saul. So chapter 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. So he's talking to Samuel, the one the book is named after. Samuel's kind of like the last judge over Israel. So he's kind of the one in charge. He's a, a judge and, and a priest who, who intercedes for the people of God. And he's the one that anointed Saul when the people said, we want this, you know, we want to have a big uh, manly king like all the other nations that grieve. God, not because it's wrong to ever have a king at all, but it wasn't the king that God had chosen, right? And now God is going to choose a different king. So he's saying, fill your horn with oil. They would anoint people with an oil. That would symbolically show that this was the person that was chosen or ordained or commissioned for a task, right? Weird to us because we don't go around pouring oil on each other, right? That's not normal, but I mean, this would have been like perfume or like lotion. You know, it wouldn't have been quite as weird in that culture. Skip down to verse 6. You know. Uh, skip when down to verse came, 6. He's, he's looking at all the sons when of they came, he's, he's looking came, at all the sons of Jesse. Eliab, when they came, he looked on Eliab, the oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So he's saying, I'm not picking Eliab just because he's the biggest and he's the you know, most big, scary-looking warrior, the oldest brother. I'm not picking him. I'm not picking him the way people pick kings. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen Jesus. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. It's kind of like he's an afterthought, right? Well, it couldn't be him. He's the youngest, and he's taking care of the sheep. He's shepherd. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which basically means red. We don't know if that means he had a sunburn or red hair. We're not really sure. From uh, You know, I've researched this quite a bit. It just He was red, okay? In some so way, he was red. It says he was red and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. All right, so, so it's not that God is against looking good on the outside. It's just that what is important is the heart. So he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and so on to Ramah. So we have this kid who, who's good looking, but he's not he's the big beefy warrior, right? He's he's not the big kingly looking one. He's the runt. He's the youngest one in the family. He was the one that was taking care of the sheep. But he's the one that God's chosen. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to pray and ask God to kind of help us make sense of all this, but we're going to kind of try to look at some different episodes in David's life, try to understand what the true king really looks like and how that should affect our lives as well. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning. We thank you for your word, that you haven't left us on our own, but you've come to us in your spirit and in your word to instruct us, to point us to you. God, I pray that as we look at the life of David, that we would see who he 
shadows, who he reflects, and that is your son Jesus, and that we would understand who you are and your grace for us. We pray in Jesus' name. There was a uh, medieval tale written, I think in France, by a guy named Mallory called Le Mort de Arthur. Any of y'all ever read? There was a Disney version of it done called The Sword and the Stone. You know that one? Right? Okay, we're more familiar with that one. Okay, so in The Sword of the Stone, it shows this story about this little punk kid, Arthur, right, who's not very impressive. He's kind of the runt, and his big brother is the big burly knight. And his big brother loses a sword, and he goes to get it, and he ends up pulling the sword that's embedded in the stone that nobody else in the entire land is able to free from the stone. And this is like a magical sword, and this proves that Arthur is actually the true king of England, right? So this is part of kind of the fairy tale that surrounds King Arthur and his kingship. And it's a story that reflects in a lot of ways the same tale of David, that the people that look like the big, tough kings are not really the kings that God has chosen, but God has chosen someone else, and we see that played out, as I said, again and again throughout the stories. One of the themes you'll see as you read through First and Second Samuel is that when Saul turns on David and it becomes jealous of him and wants to kill him, David refuses to, to kill Saul because David even honors that that God had anointed him, even if even if God said Saul's not going to keep being king and I'm going to have a new family take over through David, he was still the king, right, until he died. And David again refused and to kill him. Again and again, we see this among with David and his men that he, he was trying to honor what God had chosen. He said, I'm not going to harm the Lord's anointed. So it's this theme that you see the contrast between Saul living by the flesh, living by his own strength, and David, who trusted God. Now, David's not a perfect person, right? As we look at David, just like if we have looked at all these other Old Testament characters, they were sinners. So the difference between trusting God and not trusting God isn't that these people sin and these people never sin, that's not the difference, right? It's that when you sin, you repent, right? So God is calling us to be repentant, to turn and to trust in God and not to trust in our own strength exclusively, but to trust in him. When Saul sins, he makes excuses. When David sins and he sins with Bathsheba, his big famous sin, and he's confronted by Nathan, he repents. He's broken, and he turns from his sin. And so the difference we see is played out in a lot of ways. What I want to emphasize, first of all, is just the next little story that happens. After he's anointed in 16, verse 14, we see that the true king refreshes. And there's kind of some interesting wordplay in the Hebrew here. Um, It's the same way in the Greek. The word for spirit is also the word for wind. So both in Greek and Hebrew, right? It's this word for wind. In Greek, it's pneuma, and the uh, Hebrew is ruach. And, and so it's this idea of wind or air, uh, and it's this kind of life-giving breath, right? And so this life-giving breath is both used for the wind and also for a spirit that moves in people, whether good or bad spirit. We see this contrast played out. Remember, uh, back up to 1613, just to get the emphasis here. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. So from that day forward, the spirit of the Lord rushed. So the wind like rushed into him, right? The spirit, the breath of God's life rushes into him, this life-giving spirit in David. And that's contrasted with Saul, who's depending on his flesh. And as we talked about before, what God does to us when we turn from him and we say we don't want you is God says, okay, you can, you can live life on your own. It's not going to go well, though, right? 
ultimate judgment is, is God allowing us to do life on our own. In 1614, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, there's this whole other question of can a believer who is filled with the spirit lose that spirit, right? Can a believer now, lose his salvation? Now, the New Testament warns us right? to be fearful, be fearful in places, right? Really to be fearful that we might not really be walking with him, that we not, might not really and have so, uh, faith. And so uh, different right? theological we'll schools interpret that differently, so that right? You'll have churches that say, so that means you can lose your salvation. And other churches say, you can't. I would say it's pretty clear from the New Testament that you can't lose your salvation, but you can definitely think that you're saved. And you can lose that. The, the phenomena of appearing to be saved, the phenomena of looking like a Christian. We see those warnings a lot. We saw them in Hebrews. We see them in James. Uh, that you need to be careful. That you need to watch out. And so I don't believe that uh, Saul could have been saved and then got unsaved because God was mad at him. Okay. I think we need to do something else with this concept of the Spirit being with him. And really, to me, there's only two options based on the theology of the New Testament. There's only two options. One is. Uh, that he was still saved in the end, which kind of seems doubtful. The other option is that he never really had the Spirit indwelling him in the same way that believers do. He just had the power of the Spirit helping him do some stuff. Even though he was a non-believer that didn't love God, God graciously empowered him to do some good things. And then now that, that power is gone. However you explain it, Saul is now beginning to descend into madness. And I think the big take home for us is when we trust in our own flesh, when you trust in, in being bigger and better, you're going to come to the end of your rope, right? And it's going to end up uh, going very badly for you. They say in verse 16, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre, which would have been like kind of like a harp, guitar, that thing they played. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. So Saul said to his servants, oh, I just read that one. Provide for me this man. Verse 18, One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing. He goes on to say, he's a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, he's not really an accomplished warrior. I believe this is more of like a resume, right? This is like a, a letter of reference that someone would write and say, yeah, this dude is incredible, and he's got great potential. He could take over your company, right? I mean, that's kind of, I think, what they're doing here, because from the chronology of the story, we don't think David's really that much of an accomplished warrior yet, right? He's still kind of a shepherd. Now, we'll see later on he has fought off some bears and lions as a shepherd, but he hasn't been a warrior in the army. Verse 19 says, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse, he said, send me David your son who's with the sheep. Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. So he's basically sending gifts, right, because he's going to the king. David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. Now just another thing that like if, if you've been in college and heard a college professor talk about how the Bible is full of all these contradictions, this is one of those places. Okay, this is one of those places where people say there's a contradiction then with the next chapter when David's fighting Goliath and uh, Saul's like, who is this guy? Whose son is he? What? 
and, and I would Saul say that that was uh, Saul basically freaking out at what was happening in that chapter, right? He already knows, him, chapter, he's already right? he already knows him. He's already playing for him in this Saul chapter. But in the next chapter, Saul is just kind of like, what is going on here? Who is this guy? Okay, so, so that's how I understand it. You don't always have to um, jump to the skeptical view every time you find something that doesn't seem to match up in Scripture. Uh, in verse 22, let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. So he's, he's blessing me, right? He's, he's brought grace into my life. Verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So David used the gifts that he had, empowered by God, and, and ministered to Saul and brought grace. He brought refreshment, right? And again, this is this uh, word refreshing is another play on that word for wind and fresh air, and it ties in with the, this wind and fresh air of God being with David versus the fresh air of God leaving Saul and then the, the bad wind coming into Saul's life of this tormenting spirit. And so, you know, we've got this play on these words of refreshing and spirit and life-giving air in their life. And this has been played as out in the Hebrew. Uh, as you think about uh, what it's like to be refreshed with, with fresh air. I, I was remembering when I was a kid and we used to hold our breath under the water in the pool. Y'all ever, ever do that? Uh, kids, if you're in here, ask your parents first. But, but we used to do that. And uh, here's a picture of a kid holding breath underwater. And I can remember that, just, that feeling of just wanting to win, right? So you kind of kept holding it a little longer and a little longer, longer maybe than you should have. And finally, you know, your friend gives up and then you, you know you just jump up and take that big huge breath and just that fresh air finally getting some oxygen in your lungs that that's kind of the contrast that we see played out in Saul and David's life and I've tried to explain this last week we talked about this a little a little bit that that to reject God is like to reject life right to reject God is to reject oxygen to reject God is to reject the blessing that he wants to give you it's not that he's arbitrary and he just punishes people that don't do what he wants. He's saying, if if you walk with me, you'll have life. Like oxygen calls to us to breathe it and water calls to us to drink it. He's saying, I'm, I'm the source of life. He is the fresh air. And so we see that contrast played out with the true king and the, the king that relies on himself. And God calls on us, again, to, to turn from these other things. I really want to appeal to those of you that are kind of, you're kind of on the edge. I know a lot of people are committed to trying to live the way God has told you to live. And I think if you're in that camp, if you're really striving to live properly, you need to be reminded that living properly doesn't make God love you, right? That's really what we need to hear. We need to be reminded as God's people as we're striving to keep his law and to do what's right that that really doesn't make God love you more, that you should be doing that because God loves you, right? But there's others of you that, that aren't really trying, right? You're just kind of doing your own thing. You're just trying whatever the world tells you will make you happy. And, and I really want to appeal to you not to change so that God will like you, right? Because God likes you because of his grace, because of what Jesus has done for you. I want to call on you to change because you're you're killing when yourself, you right? When you live outside of God's boundaries, when you break God's law, it's a descent into madness. I mean, you're, you're choosing the route of Saul. You're, you're giving up the fresh air. You're, you're giving up the life. You're giving up the oxygen. You're saying, I don't want that. I think I know better how to live my life, but God made you. And so I just really want to appeal to you 
based on God's care for you. That God's law is, is not arbitrary. It's not some random thing he makes up, you know, and he changes his mind every day, but, but he wants what's best for you. God loves you, and, and that's the laws that he has set up are, are designed to give us life. The next thing that we see, the next contrast that we see is the famous story in chapter 17. The famous story where we see the true king fights for us, right? The true king fights for us, and this is where we have the famous David and Goliath story that everybody's kind of familiar with. And, and generally, the first application that we hear is that we should believe like David, and then we can defeat giants, right? You heard that sort of application before? If you trust God, then you can defeat giants too. And I think that's actually an okay application, but it's really the secondary one. Really, the primary one is that David reminds us of Jesus, who is the champion that steps in when we couldn't fight the fight ourselves. You track with what I'm saying there? That he is the one that steps in. He is the one that fights for us. And so we see that shadowed for us in because the life of David. Saul because Saul is what? What makes Saul the king? What makes Saul stand out from the others? Saul is the giant He's big. Saul is the giant of Israel. So we have the contrast of the giant of Israel being terrified by the giant of the Philistines. And I just want to encourage you again, if you're trusting in your own strength, you're trusting in how much money you have, or how much muscle you have, or how much charisma you have, or whatever it may be, you're going you're gonna to come to the end of your rope eventually. That's going to run out, right? And those gifts are not something to be thrown away. Those are things to be used, but you can't just trust in those because you're going to come to a day where you meet a bigger giant, right? If you're a giant in some area, you're going to come up against some other giant, and you're going to be afraid. And that's what we see with Saul and Goliath. If you skip down to um, 1711, I'm going to kind of summarize because I think most people know the story of, of uh, David and Goliath for the most part, basically. He's a giant. Everybody's scared of him. He's calling on the servants of Saul to send out a representative. So the king is not living up to his representative role and fighting for his people. Verse 11 says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Skip down to verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, the giant Goliath, they fled from him and were much afraid. They were terrified. I remember it they were the time scared. When I, was I remember a, a time when I was afraid. I have a picture here of a playground. Uh, I think I was about five years old, and my dad lived in this apartment complex, and there was a swing set and a playground outside. And I remember going outside, just playing the playground, and this bigger kid uh, telling me that he was going to beat me up, and I couldn't swing in the swings, and I wasn't allowed to play on the playground. You know, and at age five, I'd, I'd grown up in a pretty decent neighborhood, so no one had ever said anything like that to me before. I was just shocked, right? I I know some of you, you'd probably been beat up 12 times already by the time you're that age. Maybe, you know, maybe I, I had a charmed life when I was little, but at that point, I'd, I'd never had anybody threaten me. I mean, I was just completely freaked out, and I was afraid, you know, like these Israelites who see the giant that I think he's going to kill him. And so what did I do? I, I went to get my champion who would fight for me, right? I have a big brother that's eight years older than me, so he's 13, and so the little five-year-old goes gets the 13-year-old brother, and he comes out, and he doesn't actually have to fight. He just tells the kid to leave me alone, and he runs off, right? But but he stepped in for me, and that's that's the role of a big brother. That's the role of a father, right? That's the role of a king, and ultimately, all of those roles, when people step in for us that way, when we have a champion step in, or when we don't, that, that pushes us to long for Jesus, the true champion who does. He steps in every time. 
is one that ultimately defeats the giant, the monster of sin and death. The one monster, the one giant that none of us can defeat. We especially can't defeat it by trusting in our own flesh, by trusting in how smart we are, how good looking we are, how charming we are, how much money we have. We we can't defeat sin and death on our own. And so this again, this story pushes us to look to the true king, to Jesus, who who fights for us, who stands in for us. When you read the example of of David, I want to go back to the. Part, um, right. following his example that part, right? That, that first application that a lot of us go to that, like of being like David. I'm going back to that. We see that he realistically assesses his own so skills and gifts. Wrong with that, right? there's so there's nothing wrong, wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with having it's gifts like and talents. It's not like David was an absolute loser that couldn't do anything in life, right? It's not like Saul was big and powerful and God hates strong people. God just loves weak and broken people. I mean, that's kind of overstating it, really. Right, God David depends God on God and trusts God and with his talents. And he explains to Saul when Saul says, no, way you, explains can't Saul, Saul says, explains no way you can't do this. Well, I've, I've he explains to Saul, well, I've, I've killed lions and I've killed bears. And he says, God, the same God who delivered me from the paws of the lions and the bears can deliver me so from the hands of the soldiers. So it's not this extreme of, I have no skills and gifts whatsoever, I'm completely naive, I'm just going to trust God, right? Like, I'm going to go perform surgery and just trust God to make it work. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to do that, right? So there's this realistic assessment as we imitate David and his trust of God that he's realistically assessing the gifts that God's already given, right? But then, as I said, ultimately it's about trusting God and ultimately it's about seeing the champion that steps in for us. And the ultimate expression of that is Jesus. The ultimate expression of that in our lives trusting is trusting Him, ourselves. not just right. trusting in ourselves, right? BLA is going to do the sound of music here pretty soon, which is exciting. We all love that, but there's this one song that drives me crazy where it's all, I believe in me. You know that song I'm talking about? That's terrible theology, right? Just terrible theology. Push that song out of your mind. Go enjoy the play. Uh, but don't start uh, being discipled by that song because it's all about, you know, believing in yourself. And that's what we've done a lot with faith and belief in our culture. It's not about us. It's about what God can do for us. It's about what God can do through us and even in spite of our weakness. The last point. All right. The last point. The true king humbles himself to glorify God. Okay. We've got this great story. I'm kind of skipping now all the way to the end. As I said, we have this long kind of soap opera of Saul trying to kill David and David running. And for the most part, the, the contrast plays out, right? Saul trusts himself and that causes problems. David trusts in God and God uh, exalts him and uses him. Uh, there's, although just like all the other characters in the Bible, David falls also. David does stupid things. David repents. God still works in his life. If you skip all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 6, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see David humbling himself for the purpose of worshiping God. Okay? He makes himself look silly almost for the purpose of exalting God. Uh, if you're in the Black Bibles, it's over in page 259. And we've got this 
And we've got this story of uh, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by the Philistines, right? At the very beginning of this book series, 1 Samuel, the Ark is this place where God lives, and it's supposed to be like the box has the Ten Commandments, and it's gold, and it was like the presence of God, right? It was in the, the tabernacle, and then later on in the temple, and this is where the people would worship God and, and hear from God. And so this Ark has been stolen. Now David wins it back, and then some bad stuff happens. Happens. They can't now get it back to the capital back yet. Back the capital. Now they're finally getting and it back it into the capital. It the and it says rejoicing. they bring it into the chapter city of David six, with rejoicing. In chapter uh, 14, 6, verse uh, 14, 2 Samuel 6, 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a so linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the so sound of the horn. Of the glory and the so this representation of the glory and the weight and the honor of God, um, he's, he's bringing it back into the city. They're now going to kind of center their government and their culture around God and his presence again. So this is very important. And David's dancing before the Lord, it says, with all his might. I, I don't think I've ever mean? danced with all my might. What, what does that even mean? I don't know what that means, but it's just incredible, right? He's, he's humbling himself. He's doing something that may make him look not very kingly in order to celebrate God. It says in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, this is one of David's wives, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him. In her heart. They brought it in, they set it in place. If you'll skip down uh, to verse 20, 2 Samuel 6 20, David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So basically he's wearing a linen ephod. We were told earlier he's wearing this like linen garment, a simple white linen garment like what a priest would have worn um, in contrast to the big kingly robes and, and gold and you know, the gold staff and all that kind of stuff that a king would have worn, right? So he's kind of lowered himself to look more like a priest or look more like a simple, she says, vulgar fellow who's uncovered. So basically like, um, kind of like how you might wear t-shirts and you should have worn a suit, you know, that kind of thing. She's saying, you're not looking right. You're not dressing the part. And so she's being sarcastic, saying, oh, how you've honored yourself. But this is a really beautiful contrast with what happened all the way back in First Samuel. Samuel chapter 6. Eli is one of the first characters in the book of 1 Samuel. And we've told the story before. Eli glorifies himself and dies, and then they lose the ark, which is the glory of Israel to the Philistines. You've got this play on words. I've told you before that the word glory or honor means greatness, physical greatness, right? So the heaviness of God is contrasted with Eli, who was so glorious that he fell over and broke his neck. So it's this contrast in, in greatness, right? Size, so it's kind of like the word for fat or big in general. It could be used for any of those terms. And you've got this, this contrast. And so then now, skip all the way to the end of the book, you have David who's not really glorifying himself. He's not really making himself look big. He's not wearing the big robes. He's not wearing the big crown because he's, he's trying to give proper place to God. He's trying to glorify God and give the weight and the honor to him, but it disgusts his wife because she's like, you're a king, you shouldn't be acting like this. How does David respond? He was a little ticked off. Um, verse 21, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. 
and I will make merry saying, before the Lord. Saying, I wasn't doing this for you. I wasn't doing this for the people. I'm not trying to look like a king. I'm doing this for the Lord. I will make merry before the Lord. I love that phrase. And start working that into my daily speech. Verse 22. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. Um, sometimes the ESV bothers me, the translation, because it says things like make merry and abased. But basically it means celebrate and humble, right? Sometimes it uses old words when you could use modern words here. He's saying, I, I'm going to humble myself for the purpose of celebrating God. I'm going to abase myself for the, for the purpose of exalting and lifting up God and who he is. He says, by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. He's saying, at least they have the sense, at least the slave girls have the sense to honor me and recognize what I'm doing, that this is proper and appropriate. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And this is the narrator's way of saying she kind of died alone, right? And she died in disgrace. I had a picture here of a kid dancing. Um, don't you love how children are able to kind of celebrate without worrying what people think? You ever notice that? I don't really know where the age is when we start having that kind of self-consciousness that we have as adults. But I know that God calls on us to humble ourselves and to to feel free in order to now celebrate God. That kind of looks different in different cultures, right? But I just want to hit on something real basic for us, an easy one, and just talk about what it means to sing to God, right? That's something that all Christians have done for all time. And it really is a way of humbling ourselves. It's kind of embarrassing, right? You kind of feel awkward, especially if you're new to church culture. If you haven't been in a church that sings, for some of you, you're going, everybody does that, that's normal. But in everyday life, you don't really sing. Right, we just went to this uh, musical at VLA, and one of the themes in the musical was how I wish that in real life you could just break into song like you do in a musical, right? And that's kind of what David's doing. Um, he, he's just breaking into song, and in this strange way, and I'm thinking everybody's probably looking at him, going, "This is this is weird. What are you doing?" But that's, that's kind of how we should live as Christians. We should see life as a musical and, and God as the main point of celebration, right? We should be willing to humble ourselves to celebrate him, to sing to him. And we do that corporately, but there's other ways that we can do that in our life as well. I mean, that's supposed to be a part of the community of Christians, that we would encourage each other, that we would give each other hope, right? Colossians 3, 16, it encourages us to let the word of Christ dwell in us and then admonish admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that that's actually a way of exhorting each other, so both in community with each other, but also corporately, that that's a way that we encourage each other as we sing together. And it's a silly, strange thing, and I think we should be okay with that. Say that That's just kind of weird that we gather in a room and sing songs to God. Is that not, and that's kind of odd, right? It's not odd to you, maybe you were, you were born in the church, but I just want you to know for the rest of the culture, that's kind of odd. And there's going to be people like, like the daughter of Saul, Michael, who are just going to think that's strange. We're going to be bothered by that. But I want to encourage you that it's one of the things that God calls us to do. God calls us to humble ourselves and exalt Him in ways, in ways that we can express. I, I hope to get to the point sometime in my life when I can dance with all my might before the Lord. I'm, I just have to share I'm not there yet, okay? I'm just, I am not to that point of spiritual maturity yet in my walk, but God calls us to celebrate Him. God calls us to lift Him up. God calls us to humble ourselves um, for the purpose of glorifying Him. As we close, I wanted to look at a last little story in, in 2 Samuel 9. Just a great little highlight 
um, that'll kind of help us tie the knot on David and also connect a little bit with communion, um, something we're going to share in today. In 2 Samuel 9, I'll just kind of tell the story to you. David had made friends with Jonathan, Saul's son, right? So Saul's son, Jonathan, should have been king, but he recognized and submitted to God's plan. And it's this, again, beautiful kind of picture of Christ where Jonathan allowed David to trade places with him, right? Jonathan gave up his place for David, and they loved each other, and they made a covenant with each other, and they were best friends, and they uh, promised to honor each other's families and take care of each other. So years later now, after all the dust has settled in 2 Samuel 9, David says, hey, I want to make sure if there's anybody left in Jonathan's family that I look out for him, that I take care of him. Now, normally a king in those days would obliterate anybody left in the rival kingdom's family, right? They would just go hunt him down and kill all of them. And he finds this one lonely little guy named Mephibosheth. Y'all ever heard of Mephibosheth? Great name, right? They find Mephibosheth who is he's crippled in both feet. He's, he's, no he, he's a broken really man. He's no weak. He's no, really no rival for the kingdom. And instead of killing him, he raises him up and he adopts him into his family. And it's this beautiful picture where the text tells us that he brings him into his house and Mephibosheth always ate at the table with the king. And that's this beautiful picture we have of what Jesus does for us, right? That even though we're enemies, right? We're, we're a part of this rival kingdom. He rescues us out of that. And he brings us and he sits us at his table so that we banquet with him. And that's reflected in communion where Jesus says that he gave himself so that we could sit at that table. He, he gave his very life to be our food and our drink, right? It might have cost David a little bit as king to adopt another person into his family, but it cost Jesus everything. Jesus gave up everything to bring us to the table. So as we celebrate communion, that's what we're to remember, that we're feasting with him, that he loves us, that he's adopted us into his family. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are our true king. God, I pray that you would help us to not try to exalt ourselves as king, but entrust ourselves to you. God, in all the little daily things of life, uh, as we succeed and as we struggle, Lord, help us to know you. Help us to enjoy your grace. We pray in Jesus' name.